Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the last episode, we saw how Patrick Pierce and his colleagues were shaped by the world that they lived in. We tried to examine the characters of both Pierce and James Connolly. In this episode, we will continue trying to get to grips with the era's beliefs and themes, as well as hopefully clarify for you guys how the Irish Republican Brotherhood operated and who influenced its policies. If that sounds dry, trust me it won't be. The issues we'll cover here and the ones we examined in the last episode represent the ideological foundations for the 1916 Rising. They should hopefully help you understand who the people that launched it were and why they believed it to be necessary. If that sounds good to you, then welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising My idea of patriotism has nothing in common with later ideas of ordered progress and industrial development. Considerations such as these, combined with a perhaps excessive distaste for peace and for modernity, have brought me to my present position, which is far too bound up with my present philosophy, to be shaken by petty criticism. Irish Fenian and British Army officer Michael Moynihan, writing in a letter home to his anti-British army parents, Early 1916. Firstly, the government must be a tyranny, that is, without a legitimate title to rule the country. And there are four further conditions. The impossibility of removing the tyranny except by armed force, a proportion between the evil caused and that to be removed by the revolt, serious probability of success, and finally the approval of the community as a whole. Historian Father Xavier Martin, speaking on the factors necessary to justify a rebellion, in a radio telefiche interview, 1966. 
They sang old, well-known songs. Until that moment, those melodies had never been heard sung in unison by so many voices with the ancient Irish words. A shiver went through the auditorium. In the lingering notes there was an incomparable melancholy, like the death rattle of a nation. One after another, faces could be seen leaning into their programmes. We wept. Playwright J.M. Singh's experience of a Douglas Hyde play, 1910. It is something we keep coming back to, but blood sacrifice was a belief held close to heart by those that launched the Rising. The spectacle of dying, the drama of the event, and the knowledge that its symbolism would inspire others, these in my opinion were the important additional motivations that made martyrdom seem so worthwhile to the fifteen who ended up dying by firing squad in the days after the Rising. Blood sacrifice is harder to understand if we do not place it in context. But seen through the lens of the kind of brutalisation we examined in the last episode, and in light of the fact that the Irish Republican Brotherhood may have been inspired by other similar ideas coming from the continent, shows us that it did not simply drop out of the sky as a concept. Much is made of the willingness of the men that led 1916 to give their lives. If one is attempting to make good of the event as a whole, this is often portrayed as a good thing. Bravery, or at the very least they were brave, is a quality too often bandied about to describe men like Patrick Pierce and those that died alongside them. Yes, Patrick Pierce and his associates were brave. There's no denying that it took bravery to launch an armed attack against the British Empire's second capital with an anemic force and little hope of success. But why should bravery be considered a good thing? Irish journalist Kevin Myers made the point that bravery was in plentiful supply by 1916 all across the world. It had led to horrendous casualties, terrible consequences and the toppling of empires. But I believe it goes even deeper than that. In the name of bravery, men had gone over the top, put their lives in danger and failed to come home to their families at the end of the day. Do you think that the dreaded letter of condolences was preferable to an absence of bravery? Or do you think bravery was overrated? and that if they had to do it over, men would run away like justifiable cowards to be able to spend one more day with the families they loved or with the children they had raised. Just like John Redmond did not make his speech at Wooden Bridge imploring young Irishmen to fight for nothing, he wanted the British return of home rule by the war's end, so too did men like Pierce not plan to sacrifice themselves in vain. What it comes down to really, in my opinion, is... Patrick Pierce wanted to be famous. What, what I mean by that is, he wanted to be the symbol of Catholic Gaelic Ireland, defying Britain not through deeds but through symbols, and he had more than done his homework, as he read up on previous IRB revolts like the one in 1867, where the act of holding on to some place during a military action would draw both international attention and the subsequent failure and possible death of those that acted would create Anglo-Irish friction and they would be looked upon as the sacrificial lambs of the Irish nation. Britain had not fallen into the propaganda trap left by the likes of Pierce in the middle of the 19th century. 
Their administrations had elected to send those responsible for the 1848 and 1867 revolts abroad to work the penal colonies and fade into obscurity. Ireland had had its share of martyrs nonetheless. The 1798 and 1803 rebellions saw Irish rebels killed for their beliefs and actions. The names of these men, Theobald Wolftone and Robert Emmett, were common currency for an IRB seeking to relive its glorious past and keep alive the memory and lessons of those that had died in Ireland's name. It did not suit Pierce, of course, to point out that these men had largely been middle-class Anglo-Irish Protestants, or that leaders of any revolts against the British since had abhorred bloodshed. All that Pierce knew was that Ireland had created its dead generations, and that as the next generation responsible for preserving Ireland's legend of resistance, he and his colleagues had to act in their name. Blood sacrifice doesn't quite account for the actions of all those who went out to fight on Easter week 1916. However, it does account for the actual date of the Rising, and for the reasons why the IRB leaders chose Easter above all dates. The deeply held beliefs of Pierce regarding blood sacrifice extended into his own spiritualism. The Catholic faith was rooted and enmeshed within his own. Pierce saw himself, if not as a messianic figure, then certainly as someone who was required to die in order to set Ireland on her right path. Here we see a difference between Pierce and some of his colleagues on the military council. Whereas Pierce welcomed unexpected death, others believed it would be a likely consequence, but did not fear it for the possible moral advantages it would bring. The death would be a painful one, for sure, but the sacrifice made by Pierce would be so selfless and so inspirational, it would ensure that Ireland rose from the ashes, from the dead, and that she realised her destiny apart from Britain. In his 1915 play, The Singer, Patrick Pierce's final scene sees the main character exclaim, One man can free a people, as one man redeemed the world. I will take no pike. I will go into battle with bare hands. I will stand up before the Gaul as Christ, hung naked before men on the tree. Yet even in earlier plays, this enmeshing of Christ and the blood sacrifice required of Pierce was a common theme. Look at his 1912 play, The King, in which the heroine dies, but thereby saves his people with a sacrifice. Do not weep for this child, the audience are told, for he hath purchased freedom for his people. Similarly, in his other 1915 play, The Master, it is God, Faith and Fatherland defended against tyranny. The pagan king is defeated by, (laughs) incredibly, a schoolmaster and his young students who rely upon their Christian principles of piety and purity to emerge victorious after much loss and suffering. Now you can see what I mean about the body of work Pierce left us. He was literally leaving us a trail of sacrificial breadcrumbs for us to follow all the way to 1916. So much so did Pierce equate his own sense of patriotism with the teachings of Christ, that Catholicism in the years after was forced to grapple with the issue. While some wished to transport Pierce into the palace of national sainthood, others argued that they were uncomfortable with having Pierce profess such teachings and beliefs. One such man, Father Francis Shaw, had been determined to set the record straight in 1966, only to be put on hold since a rebuke of Pierce on the 50th anniversary of the Rising would have been 
far too controversial. Instead, Shaw had to wait until 1972 when his contribution to the journal Irish Studies was made two years after his death. A former professor in early and medieval Irish history in University College Dublin, Shaw wrote, The idea that dedication to one's country is a good thing, a Christian duty, is commonplace, but Pierce introduced a new idea, a startling one, the idea that patriotism and holiness are the same, that they are convertible concepts. I accept without question the sincerity of the subjective reverence of Pierce in the matter, but one has to say that objectively this equation of the patriot with Christ is in conflict with the whole Christian tradition, and indeed with the explicit teaching of Christ. This proves two key facts, that Pierce was perceived to have equated Christ with his sacrifice at the time of his death, and that to some authorities of the Catholic Church, it did not sit well with them. Renowned Irish historian Patrick Moam, Moam, M-A-U-M-E, leave me alone, in his article in the Historiography of 1916, was able to note its significance as a contribution to the Irish historical debate against Pierce, and what he had done when he stated, Friar Francis Shaw's studies article, The Canon of Irish History, is one of the most controversial meditations on Irish history. It caused a sensation in 1972 by declaring that the cult of Patrick Pierce as a Christ-like figure, sacrificing himself to redeem a corrupt nation, was a blasphemous parody of Christianity, a travesty of the Gaelic tradition which Pierce claimed to embody, and an insult to the Irish people, whom Pierce professed to redeem, but had in fact subjected to unnecessary suffering. Irish independence, Shaw maintained, owed nothing to Pierce and the Easter Rising, it was brought about by the efforts of such figures as John Redmond and Owen McNeill, both of whom had been maligned by Pierce for his own self-serving purposes. How do we read such comments as these, and what can they tell us about Pierce's character or aims? In a sense, Moam's comments tease out the fact that for so long people simply accepted the events of the Rising as Pierce would have wanted us to, They didn't seem willing or able to question the motives behind an event that had, up to the 1960s, so shaped the way Ireland thought about itself and had governed itself to that point. It also shows us that Pierce genuinely was seeking a kind of martyrdom, and may even have expected a post-mortem canonization into Irish sainthood, depending on whom you ask. Claire Wills' book, entitled GPO Dublin, underlines the fact that Christ and Pierce were repeatedly invoked together in the post-1916 Rising years, alluding to the numerous examples of iconography that the Rising produced. Wills points to the explosion in production of religious pietas designed to depict the rebels, most normally Pierce, cradled in the Virgin Mary's arms. Most of the pietas portrayed a female personification of Ireland holding an Irish tricolour flag, with Patrick Pierce dead at her feet, as Ireland prays to an angel. Such images played a large part in drawing together the aspects of the rising that Pierce had set in place, and passionately believed in himself. Just because they were capitalised upon by the clergy in the months following the rising, did not mean that Pierce at the time did not believe he was acting as Christ did. The subsequent arc of Irish history does not suggest that the Catholic Church were simply opportunistic and jumped at the chance to embrace Pierce's actions 
for their own popularity and benefit. Much is made today of the Catholic Church being handed the keys to the Irish state after independence, but we should not forget how much of an easier job they had of it, thanks to the writings and declarations made by the likes of Pierce, who was perhaps the most sincere advocate of a Christ-like sacrifice, but far from the only one. Only two months after the Rising in late June 1916, a Requiem Mass was held in Dublin to honour the dead, and already those that had died were being talked of as though they had risen from the dead. As the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians, the blood of patriots is the seed of freedom. It was shed not without hope, and it left hope behind, the hope that from it will spring the resurrection of the spiritual and national ideals that St. Patrick had fused into one. Not yet can we get the true perspective, but all signs foreshadow that in the blood of these men will be written the epitaph of Robert Emmett. Whether rash or wise, whether of the weak and foolish that confound the strong, they were of a class and character worthy to break the bonds of a spiritual nation. They worked for the triumph of the spiritual ideal over the unrighteous materialistic system that was strangling it, and they bravely died that their nation might live. It will live. The blood of such men is not wasted. There would certainly be grounds for accusing the Catholic Church of getting on the bandwagon after 1916 occurred, but again we should not forget that Pierce had already fertilised the crops before the Catholic Church so willingly harvested them. Pierce's Catholicism and spirituality had much to do with sacrifice, and his days as a teacher enabled him to communicate these beliefs to his peoples by tying them up with perhaps his favourite figure of a Celtic legend, Cúchulain. Cúchulain was said to have slain countless warriors in order to defend the north before falling himself amidst a hail of arrows, blood and axes. To Pierce, Cúchulain embodied the kind of sacrificial figure that he so identified with, someone who would go down in battle to defend what they believed in and whose name would inspire others after he had died. At his school in St. Enda's, Pierce would get his pupils to take part in reenactments that brought the Celtic hero's actions to life. The students, obviously, greatly enjoyed the activities. It was certainly a more vibrant curriculum than what their peers were getting, but it is unlikely that they fully realised the extent of their teacher's obsession with the figure. The legend that Pierce held onto was not without its flaws. Father Francis Shaw went one further by criticising Pierce's apparent obsession with the sacred mythical Celtic figure Cúchulain, claiming that the problem lay in the fact that Pierce's favourite Celtic hero was too indiscriminately bloodthirsty and intolerant for him to be placed alongside a Roman Catholic nation. There was indeed an obsession there. One of Pierce's students recounted that Pierce once organised a special presentation on Cúchulain, wherein the young student remembers, I looked up and saw an old Irish inscription emblazoned round a fresco over a doorway in the hall, the boy Cúchulain taking arms. He stands with uplifted shield and spear in the presence of the king. The druid has warned him that those who take arms that day shall have short lives, but a renown that is undying. Pierce translated Cúchulain's answer beneath in its half-circle of Gaelic lettering. I care not, though I live, but one day and one night, if only my fame and deeds live after me. Under the cold manner, something fiery broke into the words. Some revisionists that were able to agree with Pierce's motive for rebellion 
found themselves distinctively uncomfortable when it came to a religious definition. To them it seemed that Pierce had bestowed religious validity on a political action, in the words of the historian David Krause, who asserted that this set the tone for the exclusion of non-Catholics and the preparation for the sectarian divide that was to ensue. We could fill another library with historians who have since disagreed with Pierce's rationale for a rising, of course, but we only have room for a few. Dermot Ferreter, for one, declared definitively that A general revolutionary situation did not remotely exist in Ireland prior to 1916. It was also the case that relative government tolerance meant that those who wished to indulge in martial fervour could do so unfettered. This is important for the sake of context, and it ties into the theme we've encountered so many times over already, that the sympathy of the nation was simply not with them, and that Pierce was going against the will of that nation by acting. Historian Father Xavier Martin put it more bluntly in the late 1960s. As one of the key revisionist historians of the period, Martin's contributions are especially important for establishing the historiography of the era. Martin insisted that, Pierce and those of his mentality believed that Ireland would have to be shocked into the realization that it was becoming little more than a West province of Britain. They affirmed that the There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The only way to do so was by armed revolt. It was not to free Ireland from her slavery then, but to bring about an awakening and ensure that Ireland drifted further apart from, and not further towards, the British influence. This was an aim professed by all members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood who would launch the Rising, inspiring Ireland to have faith in its Fenian traditions, in its own Irish traditions, and in the power of physical force republicanism. This was a system of beliefs justified by the excuse that inaction was a fate worse than death. Death was a certain possibility. It could be useful, but it was not the end goal if success could be won by military means. These military means mattered less and less in the lead-up to 1916, though. 
mainly because of an increasing sense of desperation that the war would end before anything had been done, had been mixed with a desire to just do something urgently before Ireland became too anglicised and forgot her roots. To claim that reversing the current trend was possible in early 1916 would certainly have raised eyebrows. Despite the Irish cultural revival, Ireland continued to enjoy its imperial British cosmopolitan status on the whole, and the former wildness of the country, if not its distinctiveness, appeared to be in the process of dilution by 1916. To prevent such an eventuality, a short, sharp shock would demonstrate to this placid generation what they were missing out on, as well as what they could lose if they did not act soon, while it could also remind them of the extent to which the Ireland of today owed its existence to the dead generations of the past. The practical problem Pierce and his higher-ups in the IRB Supreme Council and Military Council had with planning the Rising revolved around the lack of arms, military force and popular will. An often forgotten fact of the Irish Republican Brotherhood was that, since 1867 when the uprising then had been crushed, a special provision was inserted into the Fenian Manifesto that stipulated the necessity of having the will of the majority of Ireland behind any popular rising before it could take place. What this meant was, the IRB, according to its own constitution, would not launch an uprising unless the kind of support required to carry that uprising through was present. For the majority of Ireland to support the uprising would have meant the existence of an Ireland vastly different from the thoroughly, and it pains me to say this, British Ireland of the early 20th century that history has largely handed down to us at least in the case of its more cosmopolitan regions of the East and North. The support was simply not there for the IRB to launch such a rising, and this was why the IRB actually did not support the notion of armed action as a whole united group. It plotted for the eventuality, of course, some more so than others, but to the vast majority of the IRB, a rising in 1916 was something that they not only did not approve of, but it was something which went against their very constitution as an organisation. Dennis McCullough is a prime example of this. He was the third individual of the three-man executive of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and McCullough is often forgotten about today because the other two members on this executive were Thomas Clark and Sean McDermott, two renowned Fenians who would override McCullough's protests and direct IRB policy as its leading body. Under the circumstances, how could Dennis McCullough be anything other than opposed, since the very constitution of the IRB was supposed to prevent the kind of thing that Tom Clark and Sean McDermott were planning? This may come as something of a shock to you guys who may have been expecting the IRB to lead us towards the rising in a straightforward kind of way. Really though, if you've come this far and expected things to be straightforward, you only have yourselves to blame. The IRB was constituted of a vast array of individuals, all of whom were supposed to uphold the oath they had sworn to establish the independence of Ireland and bear true allegiance to the Supreme Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. In reality though, just like any other group that existed in Ireland at this time, differences in opinion over how to proceed were rampant. If you can cast your mind back to episodes 1 and 2 where we detailed the IRB taking part in Irish politics, teaming up with the Irish Parliamentary Party and Charles Stuart Parnell, despite rulings from 
on high in the IRB that this partnership should be ended, then you'll see that the IRB has a history of not really holding its members totally in check at all times. Undoubtedly, a less radical version of the IRB did exist in 1916. This contained the likes of Bulmer Hobson, a northerner who had founded the so-called Dungannon Clubs in 1905 to try and persuade Catholics in Ulster to stop joining the British Army and join the IRB instead. Hobson was a Republican through and through, but he was no fool. He only wanted the IRB to launch an insurrection if success could be counted upon. A bloodbath would serve no purpose if it did not free Ireland from British control, in his mind. Hobson ensured that the countless groupings in Irish society which were active at the time, Sinn Féin, Ancient Order of Hibernians, Gaelic League, GAA and the Volunteers, were all infiltrated by as many IRB figures as possible, so that a kind of silent army would be the result. Hobson did not wish to act in 1916 or any other year without a plan, and yet a plan was the exact thing that members of a minority group within the IRB, its secretive military council that we encountered before, were developing. I want you to imagine the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1916 as a group with numerous layers, different layers of extremism as I've mentioned already. Now imagine that at the top of this extremist level was the IRB's military council, a group so secretive, so compact, so conservative in its note-keeping and so shady on its details that even today historians have difficulty defining it. Despite the name, the group looked more like a mini-society of extremist Fenians than an actual military council. It would be naive to suggest that other members of the IRB didn't know of its existence, but they certainly did not know of it as the extremist undercurrent of the IRB, which it certainly was by 1916. On the surface, it planned for military contingencies, which could not be put into place, since as we saw, the insertion of that clause in the IRB constitution made action legally and technically impossible. Underneath that surface, though, the plans being developed were genuinely and sincerely being cultivated as the plot for a military uprising in Dublin's city centre. This is why people talk of a minority within a minority of a minority. The IRB's military council did not represent the will of the organisation, let alone the will of Ireland, and yet this body, acting against the wishes and will of the IRB's supreme council, acted as though it spoke for the Fenians as a whole. One Fenian would later recall that The only curb on the military committee was the executive. The Supreme Council did not count so much at all. Indeed, in practical terms it did not, but to the rank and file unaware that an undercurrent of extremism within their own fringe group had effectively taken over, it seemed to be business as usual. The three-man executive, of course, had already been nullified by the combined votes of Tom Clark and Sean McDermott, who effectively had positioned themselves to direct IRB policy by 1915, setting up the military council earlier in the year, despite no representing the will of the majority in that organisation. The military council of the IRB was made up of Patrick Pierce, Thomas Clark, Joseph Plunkett, Eamon Kant, Sean McDermott, and in time, it would also include James Connolly and Thomas McDonough. Pierce had been co-opted into the circle after his oration at O'Donovan Ross's funeral in August 1915, but the circle had been active since at least May of that year. 
thanks to their inconsiderate lack of record-keeping, it is largely the task of the speculative historian to judge what was said or declared in the meetings leading up to the Rising. What we can rely on is the testimonies of those that this military council operated alongside, and who they contacted, as well as who they chose not to inform. Owen McNeil, Chief of Staff of the Irish Volunteers and critical leader of the force needed to actually make any kind of uprising a success, was not informed of the Military Council's plans. Despite his old friendship with Patrick Pierce, the latter had informed his colleagues in the Military Council that McNeil would never support a military venture unless success was guaranteed, or unless he thought the British were on their way to arrest and disarm the volunteer members. This latter point is worth remembering, and we will come back to it in the next episode. Pierce was in no doubt that the comparatively moderate MacDeal would have been horrified at their shady planning for a doomed uprising, but they needed his help, so they would have to cross that bridge when the time came. The process that the military council members went through in order to get MacNeil on side for the rising is one that reeks of drama and intrigue, But it is one that we will save for the next episode, since I feel I've been through enough with you in this installation already. To refresh, it is important to be able to imagine the structure of the IRB in your mind, since it makes the later events of the Rising easier to explain. We should not view the IRB as one extremist group with similar aims, but as a series of cliques who marched under the same banner. Within these cliques, different aims were espoused by the individuals that constituted them, and some cliques went on to have a profound level of influence disproportionate to their actual size or command of opinion within the IRB. At the top of the IRB, as we saw before, we have the Executive, a three-man council which was meant to dictate the policy of the organisation going forward, and which commanded the loyalty of IRB members by oath. Next, we had the Supreme Council of the IRB, which conducted the wishes of the Executive, and which was responsible for organising the various arms of the group. This often manifested itself by the presence of members representing certain regions. Back in the day, for example, the old Fenian-turned-politician Michael Davitt had once represented England on the Supreme Council, since he was perceived as responsible for organising IRB activities in that region. It wasn't necessarily split into a regional structure, that would be too simplistic, but there was a rhyme and reason to it. Areas thought to be of more importance, such as Ireland's east, had greater representation, while Ireland's north had less, owing to its overwhelmingly Protestant and Unionist population. From the Supreme Council did the sergeants on the ground receive their orders, and they passed these orders to the rank and file they were responsible for and met with on a regular basis. Often Supreme Council members were responsible for more sergeants than others, and sometimes American Fenians had representation, while other times that representation declined. In our era, thanks to the work of John Devoy, the American Fenians had better representation on the IRB's Supreme Council, in that its members regularly communicated with that branch of the Fenians. Tom Clark, a definite protege of John Devoy, was passionately committed to ensuring that his old mentor and the American Fenians from which he came had plenty of influence, and this may well have contributed to the increasing radicalization of his section. The Military Council of the IRB was the kind of 
background grouping they were talked of and alluded to and to make matters more complicated some members of the IRB Supreme Council and the executive such as Tom Clark sat on the military council as well. It was a kind of infiltration within an infiltration in that the more extreme IRB members had fingers in the governing apparatus of the organisation. Dermot Ferreter echoes the key fact we encountered earlier that Tom Clark and Sean McDermott formed a majority on the three-man executive of the IRB and bypassed the Supreme Council, forming a military council outside of its control. This fact explains how exactly the strange animal of the IRB had come to be by 1916. The military council had been formed by a minority, but the presence of this extremist minority, led by Tom Clark in the upper echelons of the IRB, enabled them to control matters and appear to speak for that organisation, even if they did not represent the majority opinion. This is a critical distinction, and it's one we will come back to in order to remind you of the fact. It also perhaps explains why up to this point we've been referring to the plotters of the Rising as simply the IRB. Actually untangling how the Irish Republican Brotherhood came to launch such an extremist act against its own wishes requires the proper context which by now you'll hopefully feel you can appreciate. If anything, it should demonstrate how small a minority the plotters of 1916 really were. The military council would never have gotten off the ground had the critical leading figures of Clark and Sean McDermott not been so radicalised and already in place. Both were committed Fenians, dedicated to the overthrow of British rule by violence, with or without a mandate. In the last episode, we tried to define their extremist positions in the atmosphere of 1916. What it boiled down to, we discovered, had a lot to do with what would come after. Men like McDermott, Clark, and a few other extremist leaders with less romantic ideals, such as Thomas McDonough, believed in the necessity of launching a rising for the sake of the reputation of the IRB. They felt traditional Fenian policies stipulated a rising even if the odds were not in their favour. Thus they were prepared to die and probably expected it, but they hoped that such a sacrifice would inspire others to continue the Fenian tradition and hold their example in reverence. It was this, rather than Patrick Pierce's blood, Christ-like sacrifice to redeem the nation, that motivated the more serious military men of the Rising. But there were inevitable overlaps between individuals' ideologies, especially once the military council increased its planning and its members grew closer together as allies. Perhaps Thomas McDonough's brother, John, defined the motivation of the Fenians who were determined to act the best. They were men exalted by their mission to strike once more with arms, as had been done in every generation against the British oppressor, and this purpose was so all-embracing that it completely dominated their lives, and no consideration, such as family or strict adherence to any kind of formal procedure, could be allowed to interfere with their accepted destiny, to which they gladly dedicated their lives. It was not a question of military success or failure, though there is always hope for brave men. Armed protest would revive the national spirit, and demonstrate to the world that Ireland still preserved her national spirit to resist the invader. It is important to state again, categorically, that by acting, these men went against the very constitution of the organisation that they claimed to lead. Since they were so well placed though, their formation of the military council enabled them to basically form a splinter group of extremism, which they could fill with radicals just like them, 
and they could use this group of radicals to plot for the rising that the rest of the IRB did not profess a united aim to desire. Having an extremist in leading positions is a theme of the Fenians' pre-1916 organisational tactics. Patrick Pearce was one of the highest-ranking lieutenants of the Irish Volunteers by 1916, and this rank enabled him to exude an influence on behalf of extremist republicanism that he by rights had no real justification to exude, considering that belief systems place at the bottom of the pile in Irish volunteer ideology. The Irish volunteers, to recap, were there to prevent a British betrayal and defend home rule, not launch an uprising. Yet Pierce, as a radical near the top of the group played a large part in radicalising a number of volunteers, This all under the nose of Owen MacNeill, the volunteer's chief of staff and opponent of any plans for such a rising. Not to mention, Pierce's good friend. On the 25th of October 1914, the Irish Volunteers were organised, following their split from John Redmond and the old Irish Volunteers, who were approving of the war. And a new council, of eight men that made up its governing apparatus, contained a who's who of IRB notables. Patrick Pierce was the Director of Military Organisation, Joseph Plunkett was the Director of Military Operations, Thomas McDonough was Director of Training, Eamon Kant was Director of Communications. These men were joined by the likes of Bulmer Hobson as Quartermaster, and the aforementioned Owen McNeill as Chief of Staff, as well as a few others. This situation should demonstrate how 1916 was able to happen at all. The war split in the Volunteers enabled the extremist cabal within the IRB to better be able to infiltrate them and direct them to their advantage. With the claws of the IRB's military council firmly dug into the volunteers, this meant that the extremist minority within the IRB would have a far easier time organising military action when the uprising they planned for came to pass. It boded well for their plans, and was a perfect example of how effective IRB infiltration could be if it was done right. To conclude then, Over the last two episodes, we have acquainted ourselves with a number of important issues. We have examined the context of the era, and how it may have impacted the behaviour and beliefs of those that took part in more extremist activities. We have analysed the characters of both James Connolly and Patrick Pearce, two men who were seen as the good and bad cops of the Rising, respectively, for their opposing backgrounds with similar views and ends. We examined Pearce's beliefs in particular, revolving around his desire for a blood sacrifice, as well as the way in which he was equated with a Christ-like sacrifice in the years that followed. We also looked at the military council of the IRB ad nauseum, the real cog in the machine behind any notions of a military uprising in 1916. It was this small group of men who had critical contacts and positions within a number of other groups, including the Irish Volunteers, that were the true instigators of what would take place in the next episode. It is their story, as a minority of a minority, within a minority, 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 that we will continue with in the next episode. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 